Christianity.org. And this is Christianity Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 7th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Christianity t shirts. I'm trying to think of um, more ways that our listeners, supporters, people who appreciate our work, who share our profession and who want to spread the word can do that. We've been um, posting t-shirt designs at Christianity.com. You'll find um, a couple of pictures of yours truly at the Christianity Forum if you went to um, to look for them wearing Christianity t-shirts around Panama City Beach. And in and overt attempt on my on our days off to try to capture people's attention and evangelize to them and in one degree or another. We've had um business cards made. I've done that in the past. We've had business cards made and things like that. But the um it's beautiful down here in Panama City, of course we have probably about as many niggers in town as there were in New Jersey where I grew up. So I'm used to them. But at the beach, it's usually about 90-95% white people, and and, um, they're from all over the country. So it's a good place, I think, to um, spread our message. And we get out there not once a week, but at least a couple times a month. So people are looking at org for these T-shirts, and you won't find them there. But you will find the links at com, And um, the, the real page is at a company called Spreadshirt.com. It's um, com would be our page at Spreadshirt. For as long as they can tolerate us, which... Their business, like any other business, I'm sure there's some Jews in a woodpile somewhere. This is Babylonian captivity, and we're going to have to deal with them in one way or another until the Word of God sounds, and we can send them all to the lake of fire. In the meantime, we should spread our message. We're here to present Martin Luther in Life and Death. This is part six, and we will discuss the indulgence dispute. We are still in the portion of Martin Luther in Life and Death, which concerns Luther's life. Today, we hope to focus upon the dispute concerning indulgences. The Roman Catholic Church doctrines on indulgences or I should say dogmas on indulgences, were the primary complaint against the church in Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses. And these would ultimately spark the Reformation. 
Actually, the Reformation had been ongoing for a hundred years before Luther. It started with Jan Hus, and later on in this series, we will take a digression to discuss him and the Hussites, who were still extant at the time of Martin Luther. Tonight, discussing indulgences, we will also discuss a man named Johann Tetzel, the leading Romish Catholic indulgence preacher of his time. In our last presentation in this series, we hope to have illustrated, actually I should say in the last four presentations, we hope to have illustrated the humanist influences in the court of the de' Medici papacy of Leo X and even of Julius II, his predecessor, and in the courts of the German archbishops, especially in that of Prince Albrecht of Brandenburg. The archbishop of both Mayence or Mainz and Magdeburg. These men were not only surrounded by immoral humanists who scoffed at the Christian religion, but they also led lavish and immoral lifestyles which required vast sums of money to maintain. Besides his lifestyle, we saw that Bishop Albrecht or Albert was heavily indebted to the Fuggers, the banking family of Augsburg. He was counting on the sale of indulgences to the Christians of Germany to pay off the bankers after he had split the proceeds with the Pope. The Pope would use his half of the indulgence money to help finance his building projects in Rome. To sell the indulgences, which both the Pope and the Archbishop required, the Roman Catholic Church would have to convince the German people to buy them. To do this, they needed propagandists within the Church. A man named Johann Tetzel became the leading of these propagandists who went from church to church preaching indulgences. For this cause, Tetzel should be the poster child exemplifying just how a man with a doctorate degree in theology could be nothing more than a whore for the state. He also exemplifies the childish level at which religion was peddled and still is peddled to the masses of the people and how that was just as effective 500 years ago as it is today. In fact, the Billy Grahams, the John Hagees, the Rick Warrens, the Joel Osteens of today all have their predecessor in Johann Tetzel. They are whores for the state no differently than Tetzel, except that now the goals of the state have changed.
For much of this presentation, we shall continue to use as our primary source the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages by Johannes Janssen, Volume 3, Book 5, published in an English translation by A.M. Christie in London in 1900. In the first part of our presentation of Martin Luther in Life and Death, we had discussed how, in the year 1505, Martin Luther had taken the vow of the Eremites of St. Augustine and had entered the monastery. Formerly, Luther had been studying law at Erfurt and had entered the monastery as a humanist, one of the so-called poets among whom he had many friends and acquaintances. We hope to discuss these friends and acquaintances and how Luther sort of comes back into their life later in this series because it is evident that the humanists had made significant contributions to Luther's efforts once he decided to split from the Romish church. As we have said, the humanists who despised Christianity, also who despised the Roman church, also embraced Luther as they saw in him an opportunity in their own desire for liberation from the oppressive Roman church. That's a topic for a later time, but we will, Yahweh willing, present it more or less at length later on this year. Luther had many tortured experiences while he was in the monastery, mostly relating to the self-imposed penances and things such as fastings and prayer vigils and other self-mortifications that the monks had evidently prided themselves upon. In his ascetic monastical life, Luther had described himself as having been in a state of spiritual despair. During this period, he also said, even though he was in that state of spiritual despair, he also professed to being loyal to the church, to the point that, as he wrote, he was ready to kill anyone and everyone for daring to refuse obedience to one syllable from the Pope. While at the beginning he had engaged himself with these things vigorously, he had struggled within himself to reconcile the Roman Catholic Church teachings relating to works, self-mortifications, penances, fastings, with the gospel of Christ relating to mercy and forgiveness. That struggle had caused him to completely reject the Roman Church teachings on not only these matters, but on many others as well. Later, criticizing the ascetic practices of monastic life, Luther said that 
I was a most outrageous believer in self-justification, a righteous, presumptuous seeker of salvation through works, not trusting in God's righteousness, but in my own. That quote's found in the book we are following, History of the German People, volume 3, page 84. Luther characterized the monastical emphasis on asceticism as having alienated him from God and Christ as he grew hostile to the personal sufferings which the monastic life had imposed. Our historian criticized Martin Luther for his position on these church teachings. On pages 84 and 85 of our volume, he says in response to Luther that any manual of religious instruction and devotion might have taught him that the church repudiated all Pharisaic doctrines of self-justification and considered Christ and his merits as the sole foundation of Christian righteousness and the grace of Christ as the source of all life and action that was pleasing in the sight of God and above all in the eyes of the church ascetic practices were merely means to an end wholesome discipline for weakening and overcoming sinful inclinations with the help of grace. It still boils down to works. But in no way, meritorious actions on which man could build hopes of acceptance with God. What the historian, in my assessment, may have been missing is this, that what the monks were instructing and what the policies were that were buried in the church's academic treatises or even published in its catechisms may well have been two different things. We will see that same thing later on in our presentation this evening relating to indulgences. The cardinals in Rome had um, denied that the church was teaching the necessity of indulgences while the churchmen in Germany were certainly contradicting the claims of the cardinals. So the policy in the manuals and the day-to-day actions of these more or less humanist churches were two entirely different things. It should be obvious, even to a neophyte reader of Scripture, that things such as the monks were instituting and and systematizing, things such as repetitive prayer, openly visible fasting, and other such things which were taught and practiced regularly by the monks were indeed criticized by Christ. The selling of indulgences in order to buy one's dead relations out of an imagined state of purgatory 
that's another matter entirely. And none of that bears any semblance to Christianity. However, Luther's repudiation of salvation based upon works went far beyond the denial of the necessity of asceticism. Speaking of Luther's transition from obedient monk to radical theologian, we read from this we read this from page eighty six of our history, the history of German people in the medieval in the Middle Ages. Such a state of religious exaltation describing Luther's eagerness as a monk and obedience as a monk, such a state of religious exaltation could not but be followed by a violent reaction, racked thus in the innermost depths of his being and tortured to death by his conscience. Luther ended by passing over to the other extreme. If he had hitherto put over much confidence in his own good deeds, he now cast all cast away all reliance whatever on human strength and righteousness in the work of salvation. He began to believe that man, by reason of inherited sin, had become altogether depraved and had no free will, that all human action whatever even that which was directed towards good, was an emanation from man's corrupt nature and therefore, in the sight of God, nothing more or less than deadly sin, that it was by faith alone that man could be saved. Now, we don't know the tree by its fruit because all trees are bad, evidently, according to this doctrine of Luther's. When we believe in Christ, this is a quote from Luther, we make his merits our own possession. It was thus that he now taught. We put on the garment of his righteousness, which covers all our guilt and our condition of perpetual sinfulness, and furthermore makes up in superfluity for all human shortcomings. Hence, when once we believe, we no longer need be tormented in our consciences. Be a sinner, if you will, he writes to a friend, and sin right lustily, but believe still more lustily, and rejoice in Christ, who is the vanquisher of sin. This is the attitude that Paul of Tarsus was arguing against in Romans chapter 6. From the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, sin will not separate men, even though they should commit fornication a thousand times a day and murders as frequently. Luther seems to have not only repudiated works-based salvation, but also to have formulated an ideal, and we have to know his background to understand this, he formulated an ideal pseudo-Christian religion for the immoral, pagan, 
humanists that were so much his friends just a little earlier in his life. And one which is absolutely contrary to sound Christian doctrine. While we may realize that the children of God shall not be judged by the law, we are also instructed that the children of God should nevertheless seek to establish the law. Paul spoke of establishing the law and also of the necessity for conforming to obedience in Christ. While the Roman Catholic Church created its own works, its own rituals to replace the ancient Hebrew rituals, the Old Testament rituals, and none of those rituals are truly necessary for salvation, of course not. They are all um, necessary in order to conform to the wishes of the Roman Catholic Church so that we see the priesthood as having authority. It has no authority whatsoever. None of those works are necessary for salvation. But Luther seems to have been confusing the abandonment of Catholic rituals by despising any need at all for the intentions to do good works or to keep the law of God. On the contrary, Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. On the contrary, the Apostle James had said that faith without good works is dead. Paul of Tarsus said that same thing, but he said it in a very different way. Luther tells his friend to sin right lustily, but believe still more lustily. Paul of Tarsus said in Romans chapter 3, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yeah, we establish the law. We don't make void the law through faith. Because we're of the faith, we seek to establish the law of God. We'll see that um, Luther was actually, at this time, as he formulated these opinions, he was a Bible neophyte. It's like taking a 15-year-old who's read the Bible for just a couple of years and allowing him to make church doctrine. We'll see that shortly. This is, um, bear in mind that this is 30 years before he wrote on the Jews and their lies. With this, we will return to page 87 of Volume 3 of the History of the German People. This new doctrine of justification by faith alone, Luther considered the central point of Christianity. It summed up for him the whole of Scripture, 
It was the truth which had long lain hidden on a shelf. He called it, in short, the new gospel, the only medicine for the salvation of Christendom. His teachings, he declared, contained gospel truth as pure and unadulterated almost as that of the apostles. What indeed did the word gospel mean but a new, a good, a joyful message or good news, the announcement of something that people rejoice to hear? Of course, Luther, not being an identity Christian, didn't understand the real meaning of the good news, which was the reconciliation of Israel with God, as Paul taught it. This can never be laws or commandments, for the breaking of which we shall be punished with damnation. For no one would rejoice at such an announcement. It has to be kept in mind that Luther is formulating his doctrines from things he read from Scripture, which of course are true, but he's mixing them with things that he learned from the Catholic Church, which he assumed were true. So he's basically mixing disparate elements into the same jug and drinking it down, rather than wiping the slate clean the scripture. He goes on to say, the historian goes on to say, this new doctrine began shaping itself gradually in Luther's mind in the year 1508. And that year is important. He didn't get into the monastery until 1505. And he had said himself that he never saw a Bible until he went to the monastery that he went to school at Erfurt for several years as a law student and was totally unfamiliar with the Bible. He said that himself in his own letters. We explained that in our first presentation of this series. So he's formulating these doctrines that he will stand by throughout the next 10 years and split from the Roman Catholic Church over after only three years in a monastery and three years acquaintance with Scripture. This new doctrine began shaping itself gradually in Luther's mind in the year 1508. After his appointment to the Professorship of Philosophy at the Wittenberg University, Founded six years before, meaning that the seat was founded at that university six years before. This post had been conferred on him by the elector Frederick of Saxony at the instigation of Luther's intimate friend, Johann von Staupitz. Luther's departure from Erfurt according to contemporary records of the year 1508, was not a matter of regret to the brothers there. For Luther was always 
in the right in all disputations, and he dearly loved disputing. So we see that Martin Luther, who had an incomplete education in law, was made a professor of philosophy at a large university after as little as three years in the monastery studying religion. As we had seen in our first presentation in this series, Luther was absolutely unfamiliar with scripture before entering the monastery. Yet he gained his position at Wittenberg through a political connection. This Johann von Staupitz was a doctor of theology. In 1503, he was elected the Vicar General of the Augustinian Order in Germany. And that was the order of monks that Luther had joined at Erfurt. And he himself was a teacher at the University of Wittenberg. He had a close relationship with Luther as his confessor and his mentor, which empowered Luther, while also von Staupitz had officially opposed him later in life. Some sources appropriately contend that most of what Luther had studied in the monastery was not biblical, but were rather extra-biblical ecclesiastical writings. While at Wittenberg, Luther's role would cause him to begin a more serious study of the Bible itself. It is clear that he had already established his doctrines on faith and on grace and on the law before he ever became a serious student of Scripture itself. Returning to page 87 of our history. At Wittenberg, Luther devoted himself chiefly to biblical and theological studies. He was invested with the dignity of Doctor of Divinity in 1512. As a side note, another reformer who Luther later um, took out to dry had actually invested Luther with that dignity. He was invested with the dignity of Doctor of Divinity in 1512 and lectured to admiring audiences on the Pauline letters, the letters to the Romans, and it is plural letters, but it should be letter, unless you want to count some of the other letters as being written to Romans in diverse places, which is possible. We will talk about that. Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, they were all Roman, Roman settlements as well as Greek, Roman cities as well as Greek. The letters to the Romans especially, the Psalms, and St. Augustine. He also gained great fame 
as preacher in the cathedral church. This brother has deep-set eyes, said Martin Pollock, the first rector of the Wittenberg University of Luther. He must have wonderful thoughts and ideas. So this guy just judges his thoughts and ideas based on Luther's appearance. Something strange going on there. He was a priest too. Already several years before the outbreak of the indulgence controversy, Luther had put himself outside the teaching of the church by his opinions on grace and justification and the absence of free will. And in the year 1515, according to the testimony of his eulogist, Mathesius, he was denounced as a heretic. Our righteousness, he said in a sermon preached at Christmas 1515, is only sin. Each one of us, therefore, must accept the grace offered by Christ. Learn, dear brother, he wrote on April 7, 1516, to the Augustinian George Stanley at Memmingen, learn to despair of thyself and say, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness. I am thy sin. Thou hast taken what is mine and given me what is thine. And we could see um, many shades of modern Protestantism and Protestant confessions through, through, through these words of Luther's. Only through Christ and through utter abnegation of thyself and thine own works shalt thou find peace. He was already so firmly convinced of the truth of this teaching that he added an anathema to it. So now he's basically making himself an apostle. Cursed be whoever does not believe this. His tenets are expressed in the most outspoken terms in the report of a disputation held at the university in September 1516, on which occasion he had asked to be elected president of the debate, an honor which ought by right to have been conferred on another member. In this discussion of the following thesis, among others, was defended Man commits sin whenever he acts according to his own impulses. For of himself, he can neither think nor will rightly. And that's not true because Joshua Christ, being God incarnate, told many men that they had spoken well or they had said things that were right. Of the 29 theses which he wrote out for Dr. Andon, the fourth runs thus. The truth is that man, and, and a Dr. Andon is a doctoral dissertation, the truth is that man, after having become a corrupt tree, which isn't the way the scripture says it, can will and do nothing but what is bad. And the fifth, it is false to say that the will of man is free and can decide one way or another. Our wills are not free, 
but in captivity. It was during the land of 1517 that he began preaching his new tenets openly among the people. In these sermons, he invades fiercely against those vain babblers who had filled Christendom with their chatter and had misled the poor credulous folk with their pulpit utterances, telling them that they ought to have or to cultivate good wills, good intentions, good ways of teaching. I'm sorry, of thinking. There were where no will whatever existed. Luther taught them God's will was the best will of all. Already in July 1517, three months before the beginning of the indulgence controversy, Duke George of Saxony expressed his fears of the effect of such teaching on the people when Luther proclaimed in a sermon preached at Dresden on July 25th by desire of the Duke that the mere acceptance of the merits of Christ ensured salvation and that nobody who possessed this faith need doubt of his salvation. The Duke said more than once at table, in serious earnest, he would give a great deal not to have heard this sermon, which would only make the people restive and mutinous. Luther's doctrines, for which he thought he found support in St. Augustine, in the writings of Augustine, had spread through the whole University of Wittenberg. So he writes as early as the year 1516. It was after October 31st, 1517, that they began to be disseminated throughout Germany. It was on this day that Luther, incensed by the, the indulgence preacher Johann Tetzel, affixed to the church door at Wittenberg, 29 theses, attacking the virtue of indulgences. And of course, as we saw earlier in this series of presentations, that's a matter of dispute whether he actually did nail the theses to the door. One thing is certain, that is when he sent them to the archbishop, who in turn sent them on to the pope. We will reserve a discussion of free will, a deeper discussion, for another time. And for now, we will suffice to say that the topic of free will, like the topic of the role of the law in Christianity, is highly oversimplified, even by Christian pastors. We will only say that while free will appears to be an illusion because Yahweh God already knows all the outcomes, and there's no doubt about that, men nevertheless choose the paths that Yahweh God already knows they will take. In that manner, men must accept responsibility for their own sins and not 
laid them off on God. David never said to Yahweh, Why did you make me sin? Rather, David said to Yahweh, Forgive me for my sin. So, the idea that there is no free will is an oversimplification which can lead to some seriously grave error if we don't understand it. And Luther oversimplified it. Here, between what Luther represents and what Ketzel represents, Germany seems to be caught between two extremes. Luther was not alone, and there were other reformers who were in some areas much more extreme than Luther was. However, Luther, having the political advantage, as well as apparently having had the favor of the humanists, other reformers, notably Andreas, Rudolf, Bodenstein, von Karlstadt, were demonized or fell into relative obscurity. It's von Karlstadt who bestowed Luther with his doctorate in theology, and Luther later demonized him portrayed him as being dangerous. And we identity Christians would probably appreciate, from what I've read, we would appreciate von Karlstadt even much more than we could appreciate Martin Luther. I hope to do... um, some serious study on von Karlstadt one day in the future. Some of his writings are still extant. Starting from the very bottom of page 89 of our history, Ketzel, a Dominican monk and a favorite popular preacher, had been appointed by Albert, Albert of Brandenburg, Archbishop of Mainz, sub-commissioner in Upper Germany to carry on the sale of indulgences established by Leo X for the building of St. Peter's Church. His sermons attracted everywhere immense crowds of people. As we've seen in the previous segment of this presentation, There was more to it than the building of St. Peter's Church. It was actually the replacement of St. Peter's Church with a pagan temple. And half the money would be kept by the archbishop so that he could pay the bankers that he was indebted to. In the paragraphs which follow, our historian, Johannes Janssen, appears to be something of a Catholic apologist, to a certain degree, who assumes that many of the things which the Church had historically required of its members had been correct in the first place. He does, however, illustrate the fact 
that indulgences for the dead are definitely wrong. So he gets that much. From page 90 of our book, the erroneous views still current concerning these sermons on the sale of indulgences spring chiefly from the reason that things of very different natures have not been carefully distinguished. Whoever wished to procure an indulgence for him or herself was required first to make confession in true penitence, to attend church devoutly, and to contribute to the building of St. Peter's Church in proportion to his or her means. The indulgence preachers were expressly joined, and we'll point out the, that the error in this position a little later. The indulgence preachers were expressly enjoined to dismiss no applicant without grace, as in this transaction, the welfare of Christian believers was no less considered than the building of the church, the temple that Leo X wanted to build after he ripped down St. Peter's Basilica. Those who had no money to contribute were to give their prayers and faith, for the kingdom of heaven was not open to the rich more than to the poor. Actually, the words of Christ said that the rich man would have a hard time getting into it. With regard to the granting of, indulgence, of indulgences to the living, Tetzel's teaching was throughout irreproachable, and we certainly do not agree with that. And the statement that he sold, pardon for sin for the sake of gain, without requiring penitence, has no warrant in fact. And we must assert that the entire idea has no place in Scripture, regardless of this historian's defense of it. He carries on by saying, his proceedings, meaning Tetzel's proceedings, with regard to indulgences for the dead, are more open to criticism. It has often been alleged through, I'm sorry, though from all appearances unjustly, that if Tetzel's preaching on this point was not exactly open to reproach, it corresponded closely at any rate to the sense of the lines, as soon as the gold in a casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. And that little bit of poetry was attributed to Johann Tetzel's preaching at this time by many people. In order to feel empowered to proclaim this teaching, as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. A casket, in this case, being a donation basket. In order to feel empowered to proclaim this teaching, the preacher of indulgences had only to believe that an indulgence for a dead person could certainly be obtained by payment of the prescribed sum, and that the indulgent procured would, without doubt, be applied to the particular soul it was bought for. 
as if God could maybe mix things up. Now, both in the papal bulls of that period and in the Mayans instructions, the instructions drawn up in the Archbishopric of Mainz, drawn up for the guidance of the preachers, the only condition insisted on in applicants for indulgences for the dead is a gift of money towards the building of St. Peter's Church. It is expressly stated that for obtaining this kind of indulgence, no repentance or confession is necessary. Was there any certainty, however, that the indulgences obtained would be applied to the souls for which they were bought? In the Mayans instructions, this question is answered decidedly in the affirmative. And on this point, the compiler of the instructions was able to support his statement by a scholastic interpretation recognized by eminent theologians. It was merely a scholastic opinion, however, not church dogma, that indulgences for the dead were quite certain to benefit the particular souls they had been procured for. Cardinal Cajetanus, perhaps I should say Cajetanus, it's C-A-J-E-T-A-N-U-S. Cardinal Cajetanus proves that in the Rome of Leo X, such a statement certainly did not hold good. No credence, he said, must be given to theologians and preachers who made such unfounded assertions. The preachers said, Cayetanus emphatically, come forward in the name of the church insofar as they proclaim the teaching of Christ and of the church. But if they teach out of their own heads and for their own profit, things about which they have no knowledge, they cannot pass as representatives of the church, and one cannot wonder if in such cases they fall into error. We must um, interject that at the Fifth Lateran Council, the Fifth Council of the Lateran, 1512 through 1517, which we are going to um, discuss at greater length in a future segment of this presentation, Yahweh willing. But at the Fifth Lateran Council, Cayetanus urged church reform which never happened. He was a reformer, but he was not a revolutionary. Pope Leo X made him a cardinal in 1517, which um, might have something to do with that very thing. To return to our book, it would have been better for the Catholic cause if, in so delicate a matter, the German indulgence preachers had observed the same reticence as, as Cayetanus. As, however, the indulgence commissioners themselves inserted in an official document a very dubious scholastic opinion as if it were positive truth. What was to be expected 
from the ordinary indulgence preacher. Grievous abuses there certainly were in the proceedings and the behavior of the preachers. And the manner of offering the indulgence bills and touting for customers caused all sorts of scandal. Tetzel especially cannot be altogether acquitted of blame. And, and this historian is something of a Catholic apologist who is being very moderate in his criticism of these indulgence preachers. It was not, however, the abuses of the sale which impelled Luther to the course he took, but the doctrine of indulgences itself, above all the church teaching of good works, which was contrary to his views concerning justification and free will. The satisfaction which Christ requires, he says, is in the heart so that you must not go off to Rome or to Jerusalem or to St. Jacob or hither and thither in search of absolution. Christ's letter of indulgence runs thus. If you forgive your debtors, my Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them, neither will my Father forgive you your debts. Thus, the church also had always taught. She insisted continually on a necessity of a real conversion of the heart and a worthy reception of the Eucharist for each one who wished to obtain absolution. That is to say, remission of the temporal penalties of sin. This is important right here. This is important in relation to the argument over indulgences. And, and I don't even think the historian really, really even notices it, to be honest. Luther, however, preached that this so-called indulgence brief of Christ's, sealed with his wounds and ratified by his death, was almost entirely obliterated and washed out by the deluge of Roman indulgences. Christ did not say, you observe so many fasts for your sins, say so many prayers, give so much in alms, you must do this, that, or the other. He only required us to renounce all our sins and forgive those who had trespassed against us. And of course, to a great degree, Luther is right. Such indulgence bills as, re as this would not erect a new Church of St. Peter, which no doubt was what the devil wanted, but they would build up the Church of Christ, which the devil does not want at all. Such indulgences, moreover, meaning the indulgences actually required by Christ, such indulgences, moreover, could not lose their significance through his, meaning Luther's, adding that he did not want to reject Roman indulgences altogether. Pointing out the deeper ground of his objections, he wrote later on to Tetzel, You need not trouble and distress yourself, for the matter did not begin with you. This child had, indeed, a quite different father. The church was 
full of spiritual abuses, he said once in a memorandum drawn up for the elector of Saxony. The notables of the empire had complained of them, and the pope had promised redress. As, however, the abuses had not been suppressed by those whose business it was to get rid of them, and this was a matter of business during that Fifth Lateran Council, the people were beginning to do away with them themselves all over Germany, and the clergy were despised and regarded as ignorant, unworthy, yeah, pernicious people. This sweeping away of abuses was already to a great extent in full swing before Luther's teaching began, for the whole world had grown sick and weary of them. However, Luther gave all the credit to his own teaching, through which he said religion would be saved. We'll see there were other reformers before Luther. They just didn't have the success that Luther did. Luther had political connections among all of his humanist friends that none of the other reformers had. And we see the hand of God behind it all. In opposition to Luther's thesis, Tetzel, on January 20th, 1518, posted up 106 antithesis against Luther, right? At the University of Frankfurt on the Oder, where he had taken his degree of Doctor of Theology. In these, the university teaching on indulgences was briefly and clearly set forth. Indulgences do not blot out sins, but only remit the temporal punishment due to sin, and that only when the sins have been confessed and truly repented of. Indulgences do not stultify the merits of Christ, but substitute for expiatory penalties the expiatory sufferings of Christ. In other words, Christ didn't suffer once for all of us. You could buy yourself a better expiation and substitute for the sufferings of Christ. That's nuts. Here the historian presents the teachings of Tetzel, which the historian himself claimed were irreproachable throughout, and we can see that that assessment is certainly not true. The idea that men can expiate sin through any sacrifice at all, that idea is wholly done away with in Christ. To continue that idea into the Christian era is anti-Christian. For instance, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, but this man, meaning Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So that totally refutes anything Johann Tetzel can say. Tetzel, the state needed money, the archbishop wanted to pay the bankers, and Tetzel was a whore for the state. He's going to create a theology to accomplish the will of the state. We see it today in theologians. Modern theologians have done it today for a 100 years in the United States. 
and and for three or four hundred years in Great Britain. Refuting Luther's position, Luther's contrary position, which is too far to the extreme, Paul said in that same epistle to the Hebrews, in chapter 12, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. So we we can't sin a thousand times, as Luther advises, but we can't make expiation for our sins as Tetzel claims. We can't substitute for the expiation of Christ. Man cannot do better by works than the work of God. And I'm sorry, that was Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, the historian, Johannes Janssen, while he is generally quite fair and without doubt very informative, nevertheless reveals some of his own Roman Catholic bias in his assessment of the indulgence controversy. Here at the bottom of page 93 of our volume, there's a footnote by the English editor that states that the common supposition that Tetzel had burnt Luther's theses publicly is incorrect. Instead, Tetzel's antitheses were burnt by the Wittenberg students in the marketplace. The source for that is Luther's own letters of March and May 1518. To continue with page 94 of the history of the German people. In the Holy Council of Kostnitz, writes Tetzel, it was decided anew that anyone wishing to obtain an indulgence must first have confessed at the sacrament of penitence according to the ordinance of the Holy Church or must intend so to do. Oh, All papal indulgence bulls and letters lay down also the same condition. Excuse me. Only those persons are deserving of indulgences who are truly penitent and filled with love for God, which love does not allow them to remain lazy and indolent, but stimulates them to serve God and do great works for his glory. It is, moreover, a known fact that it is Christian, God-fearing, pious people and not lewd, idle ones who are eager to obtain indulgences. Of course, parasites love to feed off the fattest and the healthiest, right? For all indulgences are given first and foremost for the sake of God's glory. Consequently, whoever gives alms to procure an indulgence bill gives to the honor of God, seeing that 
No one can obtain indulgence who has not attained to true penitence and love of God. And whoever does good works out of love for God lives to the glory of God. I don't think giving to the building aims of the Pope was what Peter, Paul, or James meant by doing good works. It is not for any works of righteousness we accomplish ourselves that God gives us salvation, but through his holy mercy. Such was the teaching which, according to Tetzel, the preachers of indulgences were enjoined to impress on the hearts of their hearers. Within the gospel framework, Tetzel's language is doublespeak. According to the grace and mercy of God, Christians who are repentant will not suffer the temporal results of their sin. One place in the gospel where this is seen is in the words of Christ in Luke chapter 13, where he says, they were present at that season, I'm sorry, where Luke says, they were present at that season, some that told him, meaning Christ, of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? Nay, I tell you, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell at Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The forgiveness and mercy of Christ are free, but the Roman Catholic Church was dividing it up and placing value upon it. While reading Tetzel's words, there is the implication that the poor may share in indulgences as well as the rich. The effect in real life is that the common people were humiliated with the prospect of neglecting their own futures if they did not buy into the indulgence scheme. As for bailing their dead ancestors out of purgatory, that fallacy perpetrated by the Roman Church is even more contrary to the Word of God. The poor would be humiliated into forking over whatever money they may have had in order to bail their dead ancestors or their dead kin out of purgatory. It gets worse. Our writer says, among the papal bulls and letters of indulgence, in which the nature of indulgences was clearly stated, we may specifically notice a decree issued by Leo X in 1518. The Pope, it said, as successor of St. Peter, which is a lie, the holder of the keys, that's a lie, and as vicar of Christ, that's a blasphemy, 
had authority through the power handed over to him with the keys of the church, that's a lie, to remit both the sins of Christian believers and the penalties incurred by those sins. That's a lie. The sins themselves were remitted by the priests in the sacrament of penitence. That's some garbage. But the temporal punishment of the sins by the absolution of the church. The absolution of the church for temporal punishment, worldly punishment of sin at the cost of indulgence bills would inevitably result in the ability of the wealthy to buy their way out of penalty for crimes. If you were wealthy, you'd be able to do just about anything and just purchase an indulgence to buy your way out of the temporal punishment. To continue with our historian, as the agitation proceeded, Tetzel plainly recognized that it was no mere scholastic dispute that Luther had started, but a serious conflict involving fundamental principles of Christian doctrine and church authority. Already in 1518, in his refutation of Luther's articles on absolution and grace, he had said, these articles inculcate contempt of the Pope and of the church. Henceforth, people will no longer believe in the teaching of the church and will interpret Holy Scripture just as it pleases them, whereby great spiritual danger will arise from among the Christian populace, for each one will believe only what suits him or her. And of course, they're all emotional arguments. The Emperor Maximilian also thoroughly grasped the whole scope of the contention. Luther's in innovations, he said in a letter to the Pope on August 5th, 1518, if not strenuously opposed, would imperil the unity of the faith and private opinion would take the place of traditional dogma. Luther claimed from the outset that his cause was the cause of God. He expected his assertions to be accepted as fixed and unalterable truths. In other words, Luther was silly enough to think that the Bible would be considered the ultimate authority by the church, right? When he sent his first indulgence thesis to his friend, Johannes Langa, on November 11, 1517, he wrote as follows. They reproached me with rashness, arrogance, and a passion for anathematizing, but without some arrogance and combativeness, or at any rate, the semblance of them, nothing new can be accomplished. In support of this statement, he alleged the example of Christ and all the holy martyrs, why they had been put to death, why had these teachers been the marks of hatred and envy, but because they had been regarded as arrogant contenders of time-honored wisdom, 
or because, without the concurrence of those who were versed in old established beliefs, they had introduced new ideas and opinions. He, Luther, taught the purest theology, which no doubt was a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Greeks' foolishness. All that he preached, and that his adversaries thus contested, he had received straight from the Almighty. Sounds like Scooby Dewey. He actually sounds like Erasmus. Here, in these statements, Luther reveals his own humanistic influences. He has reduced the Messiah, God in the flesh, to a mere man who had only introduced new ideas and opinions. Christ didn't introduce any new ideas and opinions. Everything he said is found in the Old Testament scripture. Luther taught the purest theology. No, Luther was teaching. He didn't, maybe he didn't understand it, but he was teaching secular humanism. This shows that Luther still, 1518, still had not studied his Bible very well, basically denying all of the prescience and purpose of the Christ, and at the same time mischaracterizing the nature of the enemies of Christ. They weren't the bearers of old established beliefs. They were Edomite innovators and satanic bastards. But this, the failure to recognize the Jewish problem, we see in Martin Luther, even though he came to hate, to despise the Jews, he still didn't recognize the root of the problem. To continue with page 96 of our history, Luther's reiterated declaration during the years of his great controversy that he would remain subject to the Pope and the Church while all the time he was maintaining his new doctrine of justification by faith only and of the non-freedom of the human will could only be taken to mean that he would remain true to the Church if the Church came around to his views. Under these circumstances, there could be no hope that any amount of disputation would lead to a satisfactory result. Neither could any accommodation be arrived at, either through the negotiations held with Luther by Cardinal Caetanus at Augsburg in 1518 by order of the Pope, or by the derogatory attempts at reconciliation of Karl von Miltitz. In the short conviction that he would be excommunicated, Luther had already, in July 1518, preached a sermon on the power of the papal ban, in which he propounded a new theory entirely opposed to church teaching, namely, that the true fellowship of the church was not a visible, but an invisible reality, from which one could not be excluded by a ban, but only by sin. And of course, that's also contrary to the teachings of Paul and the other apostles. Luther sort of made it up. The church, the Pope's application of it, is wrong as well. We have... Um, 
the traditional dogma of the Catholic Church, which is empirical and not biblical whatsoever. And then on the other side, we have Martin Luther, the extremist, doing away in his zeal, perhaps, with everything that's good in Scripture that Christians should pursue. Luther's conviction that he was called by God to proclaim anew the fundamental truths of Christianity. Where have I heard that before? Oh, I'm sorry, in Tennessee. Which had been falsified and distorted since the days of the apostles. Led him to declare that he would have his teaching amended by no one, not even by angels. Whoever rejects my doctrine, he said cannot be saved. It also led him to the opinion, long held by the Hussites and other heretical teachers of the 15th century, that the Pope was the Antichrist, and that the Church was languishing in Babylonish captivity. All these two and these two fixed ideas that he was a divinely inspired teacher and that the Pope was Antichrist dominated his whole life and work. Martin Luther, we must say, certainly was inspired with all his warts. It was time for the temporal power of papacy to end. And I believe that Yahweh raised up Martin Luther and the other reformers to do that. But his biblical interpretation certainly wanted, and, and that's very clear. Yahweh raises up great men all the time to do great things. That doesn't mean that they're right about everything or that they're good in all areas. Yahweh said to Paul, I have much people in this city. And he used the pagan Roman, Gallio, to make sure that Paul didn't be, wasn't harmed by the Jews. Gallio was one of those people of God in Corinth, but he certainly wasn't a Christian. That's the dispensation of God. Back to our book. On December 11, 1518, Luther sent to a friend to report of his negotiations with Cardinal Cayetanus at Augsburg with the following remark. My pen, and we'll see how much Luther despised this man, my pen is already busy with far more important matters, but I send you my trifles in order that you may judge whether I am right, supposing that the veritable Antichrist of whom St. Paul speaks is now ruling at the court of Rome. And of course, the, um, the power of papacy, the imperial papacy, is certainly a, um, a subject of biblical prophecy. Romans chapter 13, Daniel chapter 7. But here Luther makes an allusion to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul was clearly 
describing the Edomite Jews at the temple in Jerusalem as Satan seated in the temple of God. That the later is even worse than the Turks, I think I shall have no difficulty in proving. The court of Rome, he wrote to Spalatin on December 21st, 1518, is fighting Christ and his church with an army of monsters that surpasses all the horrors of the Turks. And again, on March 13th, 1516, I don't mind telling you between ourselves that I am not sure whether the Pope is Antichrist himself or only his apostle. Ten days before he had written to the Pope that he swore before God and all his creatures that he had never dreamt of impeaching the Catholic Church, that there was nothing in heaven or earth that he preferred before her, and immediately after, in the following May, he declared that it was solely for the sake of the Elector Frederick and the university that he suppressed much which otherwise he should spew forth against Rome, or rather Babylon, the spoiler of the church and the perverter of the holy scriptures. And many of the reformers, long before Luther, saw the, the Pope of Rome as the Antichrist and saw Rome itself as Mystery Babylon. Reformers as late as Alexander Hislop had taken up that cause and those symbols in his book, The Two Babylons. There are inaccuracies in the book. The, um, the idea of the Pope alone as Antichrist certainly is not true. The Apostle John said that they who deny the Christ, they are the Antichrist, and he was speaking of the Edomite Jews. There were many humanists and converso Jews, including the De Medici's, in Rome at this time, making these policies that Luther was fighting against. Luther just didn't put the two together so he couldn't see the real Antichrist power behind the scenes. Such was Luther's frame of mind while engaged in the famous dis disputation with John Eck at Leipzig during the months of June and July, 1519, when Eck, in the course of the controversy, objected against him that his views concerning the papal supremacy scarcely differed from those of the Hussites, and that the later consequently boasted of having found in Luther a new supporter of their cause. The Hussites were the followers of Jan Hus, who in Bohemia, in, in the... Um, 14th century, maybe the early 15th, but I think it was the 14th, late 14th, had, had protested against the Roman Catholic Church. And there were wars which resulted, which the Hussites had won, and they were still around, the Hussite wars. So they were never, um, the church wanted to exterminate them, and they failed. 
and the Hussites still opposed the church, but they were not of the same power and never successfully spread their rebellion into the rest of Europe. So they saw a new hero in Martin Luther, but Luther denounced them at first, and later on he picked up their cause. Luther denied that he had anything in common with the Hussites. He had never, he said, countenanced schismatics and never would do so. In February 1519, he had written that no matter could be great enough or become great enough to justify separation from the Roman church. Nay, for that for no sin or evil of any kind that one could name or think of, ought one to renounce one's love for the church and rend asunder its spiritual unity. Huss and the Hussites, he hated as heretics, principally because they rejected the doctrine of purgatory and the worship of the saints. So we see how much of a Catholic Luther really was, because the worship of the saints certainly is not found in the Bible, and the doctrine of purgatory certainly is not found in Scripture. Yet Luther, at this point, at this rather late point, this is 1519, Luther had still advocated the legitimacy of the Roman Church as an empirical institution and upheld the notion of purgatory as a doctrine as well as the worship of men who were mere elements in the creation and they are not to be worshipped as Paul even explains at length in Romans chapter 1. Even the angels are not to be worshipped as we see in Revelation of John, the revelation of Joshua Christ recorded by John, where John gets down and makes obeisance to an angel, and the angel tells John to get up, that he's only a man just like him. Our author says, in Leipzig also, he said, the Hussites had acted very wrongly because they had separated from the Roman church. Soon after this, however, he formed an entirely different opinion about the Hussites. On October 3rd, 1519, eight months later, he received letters from two Hussite leaders urging him to proceed courageously in the path he had entered on. What John Huss was formerly in Bohemia, wrote the provost of the University of Prague. You, Martin, who was a Hussite, so that's how successful the Hussites were, but only in Bohemia. You, Martin, are now in Saxony. I charge you, therefore, to pray and to be strong in the Lord. Do not despair if you are excommunicated as a heretic. Remember what Christ suffered and the apostles. The other Hussite exhorted him as follows. Do not let the Antichrist lay hold of you. 
He has a thousand ways of doing harm. May Christ preserve you. Of course, the Antichrist that the Hussite leader refers to is the Pope. In February 1520, Luther came to recognize that he was in truth a Hussite, and that John Huss had proclaimed the true gospel. The battle is the Lord's, he wrote to Spalatin in February 1520, who did not come to bring peace on earth. I, fool, without knowing it, have taught and held all the doctrines of John Huss. We are all of us Hussites without having been aware of it. Yeah, Paul and Augustine are Hussites to the very letter. For very terror, I know not what to think about the awful judgments of God on mankind. For that men have burnt and condemned evangelical truths, which has been openly proclaimed for more than a hundred years, and that one is not allowed to confess it. At the Council of Kostnitz, he said that the Pope and his followers had set forth the doctrines of the dragon of hell in place of the gospel, that Hus was a noble martyr of Christ, and that he ought to be canonized. What the historian has not asked or explained throughout all of this is why are there any so-called indulgence preachers in the first place? The very fact that specialized preachers such as Tetzel were appointed to preach indulgences demonstrates the departure of the Roman Church dogma from its own recorded practices and doctrines. The refusal of the Church to recognize any error in the practice of indulgence of, of indulgent selling, forced Martin Luther's hand. And Luther, who as late as 1519, did not want a schism with the church, Luther got the victory over the Roman church once the schism began. However, Luther's victory would be bittersweet, since it eventually resulted in the Thirty Years' War, but it had also given a license to the pagan humanists in Germany and helped them prevail in their own battle with Rome. It also gave the Jews a free ticket to keep their identity, their writings, and all of that, which is probably, even though we'd love to see the Talmuds burn, we're probably better off with the Jews keeping their Talmud and their identity because we don't want them as Christians. Here I'm going to present what Bertrand Compré had said about Luther and Tetzel from part two of his sermons on the revelation of Jesus Christ.
Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. He is the man who actually got the Reformation going as a really effective movement. The others had been sowing the seed, but he was really getting a crop now that could be reaped. He was ordained a Catholic priest in 1507. He became a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. He was a pretty good language scholar, and he was not content merely with being told what was official doctrine. He read the Bible, of course, in the Latin of the Vulgate, which was the official Bible of the Catholic Church. And even there, he discovered that it said, the just shall live by his faith, not by indulgences, not by pilgrimages to Rome, not by the worship of St. Huset, but by his faith. And Compare glossed over the rather slow development of Luther's specific beliefs. Hence, it jolted him to see how far the customs of the church and her doctrine strayed from actual scripture. Thus, he went into the whole thing, and in fact, he translated the entire Bible into German. In 1517, things came to a head. The Pope had sent traveling through Germany a Dominican monk named Tetzel, whose job it was to sell indulgences, to raise a vast sum of money for the repair of the Church of St. Peter in Rome, and actually it was to replace the basilica with a copy of a pagan temple, as we have discussed at length previously. It was an out-and-out sale. Tetzel had reduced to verse, one of which read, The money rattles in the box, the soul from purgatory flies. Aren't you willing to give the church so much money that your mother will escape thousands of years she is going to have to burn in purgatory otherwise? You give us something for the church, and for that good act, you get an indulgence that gets her out a whole hundred years earlier. Well, that was more than Martin Luther could stomach. So on the door of the church at Wittenberg, he nailed up papers stating 95 theses that he was prepared to debate with any comer. He picked out all these things that were corrupt in church, doctrine, and practice and stated that they were unscriptural. They were, in fact, contrary to scripture, and he was prepared to debate that with anybody. That was the point where the Reformation really got underway. Martin Luther did not intend to start a separate Protestant church. He was a Catholic priest, and all he wanted to do was clean up the things in his own church that he found shouldn't be there. He intended to save all that part which was good, and he had no intention of cutting himself off from it. Well, there was all the usual church strategy. He was excommunicated. He was summoned to attend a great, a great gathering at the Diet at the city of Worms, or Worms. He was outlawed, with any man encouraged to kill him with no penalty, but he went there. He was given the safe conduct promise. He could return and go to his own home, but there was intention to treacherously capture him and murder him. But by the time his doctrines had spread to some pretty influential places, with the help of his humanist friends. He came there. He refused to recant. He defended his doctrines, showed where they were sound according to the Bible, and he just planted himself. 
He said, here I stand. God helping me, I can do no other. He wouldn't yield one inch. Prince Frederick of Saxony knew of the plot to arrest and murder him so that he had some troops of his own kidnap Martin Luther and Russian out to safety. And for a bit over a year, he hid Luther in his own castle, where Luther continued his writings. Finally, after a bit more than a year, it was safe to let Luther out again. Lutherism spread very rapidly. Lutheranism, I'm sorry, spread very rapidly throughout Germany and Scandinavia from then on. Now the church, having refused to clean up any of this thing, the people who saw that these things were contrary to the Bible had no choice left to them but to leave the church and organize their own church, which would not have these doctrinal errors. As I say, that is not what Martin Luther started out trying to do. He wanted the church to clean up its own mistakes and to keep all its people, but it was not so, but it was so not to be, and Compare was good in assessing that it was the indulgences that ultimately forced the Reformation, which men had been trying for years. There were reformers 50, 60 years before Luther. Jan Hus was over 100 years before Luther. They weren't able to get it done. But in the meantime, the humanists in the church were building up their own position of numbers and power. And if it weren't for the humanists, Luther's split from the church most likely would have failed. We will see that in in a future segment of this series. For now, I'll be here next week with two Corinthians, part three. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.